Nonprofit Lowdown fam. As we head into the end of a very long 2020, I wanted to thank you so much for listening. Nonprofit Lowdown started as a fun project in 2018, and it's now become a community and a family. Thanks for letting me into your ears every week. I hope you and your loved ones have a happy, safe, and restful holiday break. In honor of the end of the year, I'm rebroadcasting two of our most popular episodes. In case you missed it, check it out. Also, if you enjoyed Nonprofit Lowdown, I'd appreciate if you could take a second to write a review on Apple Podcasts and share episodes with your friends. It helps to get more folks benefiting from the wisdom of my guests. Until then, happy holidays, stay safe, be well, and I'll see you in 2021. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Today, I got my buddy here, Benny Vasquez, Chief Equity Officer at the Kip Foundation. Hey. Welcome, Benny. Thank you, Rhea. Thanks for having me. Of course. Tell me a little bit about your own journey and your career and cool. why DEI has been like the center of your whole career. I started thinking about anti-racism and racial justice work when I was 12 years old. I think that was the moment. I grew up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, not the Williamsburg that we see today, like totally exactly different, obviously, because gentrification, that's a whole nother webinar, right? But especially when I went to high school, I noticed that the education I was getting in my public school was very different than so much St. Anne's or Full Ride. And just the amount of the difference between a bus and a train ride to Brooklyn Heights at, in the 80s and 90s was drastically. And I was like, why is it that all these white kids have the resources available for them, but yet me and my peers in my public school, there were 30 of us in a class with no resources. And now I'm sitting in a seminar style in ninth grade with six kids. I'm the only person of color and we have all the resources at our fingertips. And so I started noticing the discrepancies, right? And so my journey took me to really dedicate my life's work at the intersection of education and anti-racism. And so that has provided me the opportunity to work specifically around LGBTQ in education. I worked with GLSEN for a hot minute, doing work around ensuring that LGBTQ students have safe spaces in their schools and ensuring that schools are built to protect people from my community, LGBTQ, and people of color. And then I did some consulting. I ended up in independent schools, and this is actually where we met, was at a town school. I was director of diversity there. And that was a whole, that's a whole nother story in terms of doing DEI work and anti-racism work in predominantly white institutions that are not necessarily meant for us, aka independent schools. And by us, I mean people of color, Black and people of color. And then that ended. I went to some consulting, and then I ended up at Border Crossers, which is now a center for racial justice and education, where a motto is racism wherever children learn. And that work really provided me the opportunity to train hundreds of educators across the country on how to dismantle racism. And now I'm at KIPP Foundation, where I'm Chief Equity Officer. And really, my work is to provide strategy and approach on how we dismantle patterns of racism and white supremacy in our schools, in our foundation, in our regions, in our network, in our leadership, and really digging deep around what are some of the practices and policies that are not serving the children that we work with. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour as an ed reform nerd, right? So you and I came up in New York around like the no excuses charter school movement, which I think really did a lot of harm to kids. And I don't know if you recently saw the spokesperson for Success Academy 
and accused Success Academy policies of being white supremacist and racist and damaging to kids. I think KIPP has come a long way in terms of the way that they approach their work. I certainly remember in like the mid-2000s where it was almost yeah. sort of militaristic. And so I guess I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about like what kind of reckoning is happening at like the charter school levels around yeah. how they're thinking about the work and how they're thinking about their treatment of children through an anti-racist lens. Yeah, that's a great question. So from my seat, I am one of the first chief equity officers of a chartered network. I think there's maybe one or two more. And so I think this has now become the place where the work is going. Let's hire somebody who can support and set the direction, right? And I think simultaneously what we're hearing a lot from alumni is there needs to be some reckoning, like there needs to be some acknowledgement of, of harm. And I think what we're also hearing, especially now in terms of the movement, the continued movement for Black Lives and what's happening after Floyd's murder, there's a moment that has to be seized. And I think the alumni and the parents and the teachers and other leaders within the organization are holding all of us accountable around how do we continue to uplift and center our black and brown children and cease the harm that has been caused. And so these are consistent conversations. And I know that one of the things, and this is public because I say it all the time, that I almost didn't come to KIPP because of the reputation that KIPP had. One thing that actually provided me peace was that during the interview process, it was so clear that they knew who they were getting, they were getting me, and that I wasn't going to sort of bend in terms of my protection and my love for the Black and brown children that we work with. And so that being said, there's work that's happening in the charter school movement. And I think now, because of what's happening around the world, people are catching up and trying to solve racism in a week when that's not possible, right? And so what I am sort of stamping is that the time is now. Yes, the time has been here for years. The time was here 30 years ago. But now is when we actually are being listened to. And so it's time, the time is now to create and the shifts that we need to create. You know, one thing I've been thinking about recently is this idea of like performative wokeness. Yes. And I was saying like, I've had more conversations over the last month with white people about racism than I have in the previous 40 years. And yeah. so I guess I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about performative wokeness? Like, is that a first step towards actual wokeness? Or do you think it's all just like a show for this yeah. moment? I hate the term wokeness, to be honest. White people will never be woke. And I say that with as much love as I have for my white folks, especially white folks who are doing the work. But I think being woke, particularly for white people, is a facade. I think if white people claim that they're woke, then they're actually not woke at all. Because part of the work that white people need to do right now is reckon with their own racism and also begin to think about how they, in their homes, in their jobs, in their community, in the world, in the planet, continue to dismantle white supremacy. If they only do that nine to five and they're like out there marching, but then at home, they're not talking to their racist uncle who's saying some bull stuff at the dinner table, then what? Then don't do the work. And so... When I think about performative wokeness, I think about those white people who are out there marching, but then when actually push comes to shove, they're not willing to risk their power to create change and shift. So my question to white people is always, what are you going to risk? Are you going to risk your job to ensure that black and brown folks are lifted up in your organization? And if you're not willing to risk your job, then don't fight for me. That's a strong stance, my friend. I've never known you to pull punches. So. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's like, we don't have time. We don't yeah. have time for this. Are you encouraged by the kind of activism that you're seeing amongst the younger generation? 
For sure. It gives me hope, right? Because in moments where like nothing's going to change, everything's going to stay the same. And it just gives me hope that the next generation that's already here is actually paving the way for the changes that we need to see immediately. And it's like what I love about what's happening is the relentlessness. Like it's just like it's now or like either come on the bus or get out. Right. And I think that that's the moment that I think we've been waiting for. And it's here. It just hasn't been uncovered. Right. And unfortunately, the uncovering comes at the death of many Black people. Right. It took the death of many Black people publicly for there to be a movement of such a level. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's that. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. Like, that's what it had to yeah. get to in order to get people to pay attention. Right. Those of us who are sort of new to this, can you talk to us about the distinction between being not racist and anti-racist? I think the term anti-racist might be like fairly new to folks in the mainstream. Something specifically about Abraham Kendi's work, how to be anti-racist. So break this down for us, please. Okay. Okay. I think it's different for white people and black people and people of color, right? I think the term can be different. So let me just give you a general and then we can sort of dig down. I've always thought about non-racist as people who say, I'm not racist, but I'm not actually fighting actively on a daily occurrence to dismantle systems that are harming black and brown people. Right. So those are the people who say I'm not racist, but yet when it's the microaggression that's happening or when it's the policy is about to be passed or practice that continues to happen, there's no interruption. But they're not racist. They're non-racist because they have no action to it. Anti-racist for me is someone who continuously fights against racism and continuously fights against anti-blackness. Right. And so for people of color, for us to be anti-racist is for us to continuously be aware of how anti-blackness affects our daily practices and our daily behavior and to bring to light when other people do that. I think white people who are anti-racist are white people who continue to fight against racism, but also continue to be very conscious as to how they themselves perpetuate white supremacy on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis. And that for white folks, I think it's a much longer journey for them to become fully anti-racist because you need to be in it all the time. That's a distinction that I make. Yeah, so this is an interesting question because I think, like I said, I think the last couple of months has been the first time I've talked to a number of well-meaning white people who are like, oh my God, racism is like a thing. And I think what's hard is when it's so much of the air that you breathe and it's like being a goldfish. You're like, wait, there's water? I'm wet? So how do you start to see it if it's not visible to you as a person? My advice to white people when that question comes up is talk to other white people who have been in the work longer than you have so that you can start seeing it. And there's so many resources out there and so many groups that are focusing on dismantling racism for white people that all you need to do is open up a browser and Google. It's really not that hard. The excuse of I don't know where to start, that is tied for me to fragility, to perfectionism, and to lack of energy. Let's talk about white fragility for a hot second, because I would love for you to talk. So white fragility written by Robin DiAngelo. What is white fragility and how has that kept us from engaging in real conversations about race? White fragility for me is a physical and emotional and verbal response that at times white people have whenever racism is being talked about. And it can manifest in many different ways. It can manifest as offensiveness, as anger, as white tears, as dismissive of situation, as shutting down situation because they're not really sure how to handle it. And it can also manifest as freezing, 
like just like not even being able to talk. And this fragility comes from white people not necessarily having the skill to be able to confront racism because they haven't had to, right? And I get it. And so, but sometimes the fragility, what can happen is that everybody focuses their attention on the fragility. And so what gets centered is whiteness and white feelings. And what gets decentered is the safety of black and brown folks and people of color. And so in mixed race conversations, if we continue to play into this fragility, for example, I usually facilitate with a white colleague when I do my trainings. And if there's a white woman who's crying, our approach is not to stop the training and make sure she's okay. Our approach is, do you need a tissue? And continue the conversation. Because what can happen if we focus on those tears, white tears have caused much harm for people of color and black people in particular. Uh, like we don't have time to send to those tears. And I think the tears can come when white people talk to white people about race. That's your space. That's your time to cry, to be able to overtly show your fragility. Because hopefully if you're in the right circles, white people will hold you accountable. I, uh, I was recently having conversations with folks about developing white affinity spaces. And there was a very visceral reaction and pushback to that. It's not inclusive if we just have a space for white people. And I was like, okay, well, obviously we need to start at a very basic level, like basic yeah. understanding of like why a white affinity space is necessary. But White people have been meeting in affinity spaces for a long time and they're meeting as white people, but not focusing on dismantling racism. Good point, sir. Good point. All right, so let me ask you this. So we talked a little bit about what it means to be an anti-racist on a personal level, right? In really interrogating your own relationship to white supremacy, interrogating your own anti-blackness, being willing to stand up in your personal and your professional life. Talk to me about what it would look like on an organizational level to be anti-racist. One of the things that, that I've been I've used for a long time is like continuum towards anti-racism education or uh, organizations. And basically, one of the things that I usually say is that an organization can continue to work towards anti-racism. An organization might never be anti-racist, right? Because of the foundation that we're built in, in terms of white supremacy, there's always going to be something that we're going to have to fight against that we might not even have, it, have thought about when we first began the journey, right? And so anti-racism is continuous. It's not stagnant, right? And so for organization to become anti-racist, there needs to be resources that are attached to this. It can't be like, let's just hire one person and have this one person do it all by themselves because that's actually gonna fail. And most of the times those people that they hire are black and brown folks that are not set up for success, right? I, I sense that you're speaking from experience, but please continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> right, and so, and I also think that there needs to be part of my approach to the work is grounded in love and transformation, right? If we as an organization are only focusing on, on shifting policies but not shifting mindsets, you're not going to get anywhere because you can have the best policy that's anti-racist, but if people are behaving the way they're behaving and are continuing to inflict harm, then that policy don't mean anything. And so there needs to be mind shift change that are, that's grounded in transformation and it's grounded in self-awareness that can lead towards shift in policies and practices that can lead towards anti-racism, right? And all of this needs to be couched under resources and a commitment to anti-racism and black and brown bodies. And so what's that, what does that sequencing look like, right? Because you're talking about a big 
sort of shift both in like organizational yeah. culture and policies and procedures. So walk me through like a scope and sequence here. Yeah. One of the things that I usually like to start with is common ground on, on language and analysis, right? Because one of the things that's important when you do anti-racism work is ensure that as an organization, you're talking the same language, right? That when I say white supremacy, you know what I mean. When I say racism, colorism, you understand, right? When, that we, when we talk about power, there's a common understanding. And so I think that that's where I like to start. And then after that is ensuring that we are looking at policies and practices that have continued to cause harm or that are basically racist and unpacking what these policies are, creating new ones, and then checking to ensure that the new ones that we're creating are not continuing to perpetuate harm, but are actually towards liberation. And it's a cycle. The more that people leave, come back. But tell me a little bit about where you think like the leadership has to be in this space. Cause like so often we're looking at organizations that are white led. Yeah. And you know, in some cases I could imagine that a white leader like might say this thing, but n- may not really understand the full scope of like what it means to be working towards anti-racism. Yeah. So like what kind of buy-in do you need at the leadership level? Yeah. You need complete buy-in. It's like, you don't need them to say I'm bought in. You need them to actually do the work alongside, right? Because what sometimes happens with leaders is, with white leaders in particular, is that they'll stamp, yeah, I want to do this work, but then they're not there when you have the white affinity space. They're not there for the training, right? And so part of a leader's work is also doing their own work in order to move the organization forward. And so what if you are not the leader, say you're on staff and you have a leader who's not really willing to engage in that way. Is there anything to be done other than to leave? What's the solution here? Yeah, it depends. I've been in situations where I've been an employee and my leader just doesn't get it. And so what I've done is either try to get somebody who I know gets it, who might be at the same level as them to talk to them about it, or I have decided that this space is actually not good for my well-being. It's harming me emotionally. It's traumatic. I am going to leave, right? And so I don't want to have to force anybody to do this work. Mm-hmm. And as my role as a Black man is not to force you to do this work. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't come from your gut and from your heart and from your spirit that this work is important, I'm the, I don't have time to convince you. Mm. I'm just going to bounce. Yeah. Life is too short. Yeah. And this work is too hard. Yeah. Okay, last question for you before we open it up to folks on the call. And again, reminder for folks on the call, if you have a question, throw it in the chat and be happy to have you join the convo. Benny, you and I are coming from an education background. We're both very passionate about kids and education. And I'm wondering if you could talk me through a little bit around as educators or parents or people who deal with younger people, like how do we really start to educate and embed anti-racism in their upbringing and their perspectives? Yeah, I could talk from what I'm doing now, right? So I have a young child, she's three years old, that me and my partner adopted. She also, from all that we know about her background, she's white presenting. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing, you know, our stories at the age of three, that's what we can do, right? And ensuring that whenever race is brought up in the conversation that we don't shut it down. Like I've been in many situations when a kid mentions something about race and then the parents like, shh, Let's not talk about it. No, engage. Because what's happening is that if you don't engage your kids around race and racism, other people will, and you won't be able to control that. 
other people will be doing it anyway. And so how beautiful would it be for you and your child to have an understanding as to what in this household we believe in and what is right for the world versus them hearing it from somebody else and you having to help them unlearn the messages that they're hearing. I have a friend who, on a daily, she has, he has two little black girls. Before he puts them to bed, they have an affirmation, right? And so every day they say, I am beautiful. I love my skin. I love my hair, right? And so those messages continuously reaffirming that black and brown is beautiful is so needed because if we don't do that, they won't see it. Last week, we had Martha Hackmat on the webinar. We love Martha. Um, You know the work that I was engaged in at Breakthrough. And, you know, you yourself are a product of the independent school world. And so I guess I'm just really struggling with how to reckon with the fact that at Breakthrough, we often sent kids into, like, predominantly white elite institutions that, you know, may have caused them harm on the one hand, but on the other hand, also provided like wonderful opportunities they would not have had in a local public school. So I guess I'm just wondering from your own perspective as a product of the independent school world, like how do you reckon with that on the one hand of like great opportunity, on the other hand, like probably great like psychological harm and trauma? Yeah, girl, I'm still reckoning with that. Like I really am. Like these institutions, and I have worked with many of them in New York City, they're not set up for us to succeed, right? And so I think one of the things that independent schools should think about or programs like Breakthrough and programs like Prep Prep is ensuring that when we put kids of color into these spaces, that they have resources for mental health to deal with racial trauma. That should be hand in hand because racial trauma will happen. Unfortunately, and until these schools are actually open and welcoming to black and brown folk, the trauma is going to continue to perpetuate. So I'm still reckoning whether these schools should actually exist. Such a revolutionary, Benny. Ready to burn it down. Question that I have, like, it's an honest question that we need to think about. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because recently, actually this week, I had a meeting of alumni of color from my independent school and everyone sort of shared their stories and it was like such pain and what was really striking to me is I, you know, I graduated high school more than 20 years ago. I had kids on that line talking about stuff that happened last year and it was the same kind of story and I was like, wow, we haven't really changed in 20 years. It's still the same thing. I mean, we're trying to make strides, I think, but it's an all too common story. I mean, I don't know if you saw the New York Times article about the Black alumni from Chapin, Spence, and Rarely coming out about yes. anti-Black culture in these schools. So I think there is a reckoning coming. Yeah. Okay, so I have a question coming in from Daniel. I'm going to unmute him and have him ask his question. Hold on one second. Rhea, you got me? Yeah. Hi, Daniel. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for doing this today. And Rhea, I think it's my question is we're ahead of some and behind others in terms of our journey to be an anti-racist organization, but we are leaning in and I'm certainly leaning into this, but I was hoping if you knew of some similarly positioned service organizations that are reasonably reasonably in scope and scale to the size that we are, that we could point to that are like really doing a great job on this, that are models that we could go visit and talk to them and understand a little bit more about the work that they're doing so we can just understand like what it takes to win. What scope is your organization? We're opening up our fifth school this year. We have roughly 1,500 students and around 40 million in revenues. Okay, got it. In terms of organizations that I feel are continuing to commit to this work at the same scope and scale. So, Andrea, you might know, you know Merle. 
Merle McGee from Planned Parenthood NYC. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, they're doing some great work at Planned Parenthood NY, and that might be a good place for you to tap into. And even though it's not the same scale, some of the best anti-racist practitioners that I know work in independent schools. Right, independent schools are also a good hub to learn about how to do this work and how to do it well. And I think that there's also some schools in California, there's also some networks in California that have been ahead of the game in terms of this work. Off the top of my head, I can't remember any names, but if you want, you can email me and we can also have a conversation about what Kip is doing. And what I can do as well, Benny, after this call, if you want to put together some resources, I'll send it out when we post this. Cool, great. Actually, that's a good question, though. What are some of your favorite resources? Because I know you mentioned that one rubric framework that you use. Tell us more about that and anything else that you to do your work. So I use that rubric. It's called Continuum for Anti-Racist Organizations. Another book that has been really helpful has been My Grandmother's Hands that talks about white body supremacy and the impact it has on all of us. There's also Emergent Strategies by Adrian Marie Brown um, that has really helped in thinking about how do I, like for me particularly, like how do I approach this work in a way that's emergent? And then another resource that's also good is to remember the name of it. Sometimes I always go back to the classics, right? Because I think that part of the work is also learning what, from what others have done. And one of my favorite books that sort of um, supported my growth and my analysis is A Bridge Called My Back, which is basically yeah. a collection of essays from women of color. So those are some that are from the top of my head that I could think of. Cool. I will make sure that we send those resources out. I'm going to call on one of my favorite people, Mamuna. So Mamuna and I have known each other forever because her daughter Hawa and Khadija were both in Breakthrough. And Mamuna has oh. an amazing story. So Mamuna, I'm going to call on you. Go ahead. Hi. Good afternoon. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Maria, thank you for inviting me to join this. I was in another meeting, so I didn't get to start from the beginning. But this is a forum that I continuously love joining. Any opportunity to learn from anybody anywhere out there. So, and I had the question from the last person you spoke to, and that's why I raised my hand. Because Ria, like she said, I have an amazing story. Ria is my daughter's mentor, like really an amazing person she looked up to. And I've been a parent in NYC, came in as an immigrant, grew up through that process in being engaged as a parent from Head Start program of the way and put myself through, because I love early childhood, put myself in City College uh, as an early childhood educator, graduated, and then went to Bank Street College and graduated also as early childhood leadership. Now I work in Bank Street with the Center on Culture, Race, and Equity. So that person that spoke just right now was asking for resources. And I think the powerful thing for me for New York is that as much as we are looking for outside, from outside for support, I think the most powerful thing is also to look within inside. There are organizations that are really, really strong. And one of those organizations, not to sing out my own stuff, is our organization that is embedded in Bank Street. Like we have, we are working with the state, we are working on that is our strong thing, working on everything that is equity and our platform is powerful. So I'm going to send really the information and you can add that to the resources that people can reach out to us. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Yeah, Mamuna is an amazing person. She single-handedly raised four amazing kids 
they're all like successful, amazing, wonderful people. So, you know, Benny, one thing that I have been thinking about, curious to see what you think about this is, you know, as an Asian American person, I've really been thinking a lot about what it means to be engaged in equity work. And I think part of it, to your point, is like my whole career has really been dedicated to social justice and equity. And I think deep within the Asian American community has been a very close relationship to white supremacy, anti-Blackness. And so, you know, I've really committed to not only doing the work publicly, but also within my own family. Like, to your point, like, saying stuff to your racist uncle who says stuff. It's always an uncle. It's it's always an uncle, I know. (laughs) But I guess talk to me about like where you see space for other folks of color, like other non-Black folks of color in the work and like how, what does it mean to be in solidarity and to stand shoulder to shoulder with? I think that what you mentioned really resonates in terms of working within your own community to ensure that anti-Blackness is being addressed, right, actively. And I also think that taking leadership from Black folks at this moment is also important, right? So sometimes I think what I've been struggling with, and I know other folks have been struggling with, and not, not necessarily in my organization, but just outside of it, is this question about, so I'm not Black, what do I do, right? And that's a really good question. And I also think that the question can be answered by rallying your folks to ensure that they're not causing further harm and to ensure that they are supporting the movement, right? That actually the liberation of Black lives is a liberation for everybody. And if folks need to see that connection, and so my push would be for folks who don't identify as Black to have that as a forefront of your movement. That the liberation for Black lives is a liberation for everybody. Yep, I totally agree. And I think that there is sort of a lack of recognition amongst, I'll just call out my people, the Asian American community, of how Black people have actually made some of the privileges that we enjoy possible. You know, whether it's civil rights, whether it's immigration, whether it's sort of born on the back of Black people. And so liberation for one does mean liberation for all. And if we can make that clear across all of the different people, like, and even white people, like, we're all like working towards this thing. (laughs) We're beautiful, multicolored rainbow that we're all going to move forward. I'm going to call him CJ Crowder, one of my faves. CJ! Hi. Hello. Happy birthday. Thank you. You guys, you're too sweet. 25 is like, I'm so old. (laughs) It's 21. 25. Wow. I know. I know. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, This has been great. I've been taking a lot of notes. My question, and I'm going to pull up just to make sure I don't screw it up, is how have you managed white senior leaders who say they value diversity, but then fail to follow through when they're leading a hiring process or when they have final say in the display for C-level roles. And this is, I, and my experience has been that they, they say they value diversity. There's a group of talented folks in the final pool. And they, in my experience, they've looked for reasons to not make a decision or make an offer for a person of color. Um, it, it feels to me like they are just uncomfortable or unwilling to hire uh, a person of color for a senior position. So I think a couple of things come to mind, right? So for me, valuing diversity is not the same as valuing racial justice, right? And I think that there's a difference there. 
Diversity for me, just it doesn't mean anti-racism. It doesn't mean racial justice. It doesn't mean liberation of Black people. It doesn't mean hiring of Black people. It just means barriers, right? And so I think that one of the things that has helped me is to ground my senior leaders, my fellow senior leaders, on what I'm talking about when I'm, when I'm thinking about racial justice, right? And when I say that we need to continually hire more black and brown and people of color and also that hiring of people of color within organization is a part of anti-racism but it is not the answer right what i don't want is people of color to be hired within organizations that don't further the work you know what i'm saying like all what is it all my kinfolk right and so to ensure that the questions that are being asked of folks also are grounded in anti-racism principles to actually get, for you to be able to get the analysis of the person you're, you're trying to hire. So that's that. I think in terms of your question, this is when accountability happens. Like this is when you get to say, what I'm seeing is that you are not hiring people, of, you're, you're not hiring people of color, like what's happening? And also think about what accountability measures do you all have to ensure that this is part of, this is a priority for your organization? One thing that I know organizations do is that they must have two finalists of color in the final slate, or the search does not continue. So maybe it's time for you, if you haven't thought about that already, to think about implementing a policy that ensures that the plate will be racially diverse. One last question, and then I think we have time for another question after that. But I think what I've seen in organizations, Benny, is it's often the people of color who are really pushing on the DEI stuff and the racial equity agenda. And I've seen senior white leaders kind of tune it out. And or on the other side, you have the person of color like just burning out because like to be the only person who's like beating that drum is exhausting. So tell me a little bit about any strategies that you have or any thoughts you have about like how can this equity agenda be more broadly shared across wider group of people? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that, that I've seen that supports the work is to bring white people along who are in leadership is white affinity spaces run by people who have done this work for years and are good at it in accountability to people of color, right? Like I think it goes back to the mind shift change. If they're white leaders who are just not wanting to get it, again, it's not my responsibility to make you get it. White people need to work with other white people to help them get it. And so my call for folks of color who are struggling with this particular issue is to give yourself some grace and to start thinking about what other white people within your organization you can tap that can support you with the work. Because sometimes these positions chief equity officer or diversity practitioner or what have you, it's not intended to for it to all fall on our shoulders. It can actually cause harm and burnout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely seeing that. So I think we have time for one last question. Uh, Carrie is coming in with a question. Carrie, what's your question, my friend? I just heard you say that white folks could benefit from having great uh, folks who've done the work for a long time to help with facilitating white affinity spaces and thought it would be helpful if you could put a list together of people to do that work that you'd recommend. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll give you two resources right now that I think would be helpful. There's Surge, which is, are you familiar with Surge, yep. Carrie? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. There's also one of my dear colleagues that I work with consistently, Randy Clancy, 
is a white anti-racist who does white affinity spaces. And if you look her up, her email, her website is randneeclancy.com. Thank you. And we'll make sure to share that out in the resources when we send out the podcast. We have time for one last question. If anybody has anything else that they want to talk with Benny about. Apparently, Benny, you have uh, answered all questions. You, <laughs> that's it. We're done. <laughs> Anti-racist guru. We're, we don't have any that's other that's questions. We solved racism. <laughs> we solved racism. I'm so glad. On my uh, birthday. On your birthday. Happy birthday. That was your gift. I mean, it's a great gift. So I have like been puzzling about this and I would just, uh, oh, I have a good question coming in from Molly. Okay, I will ask this question then Molly, I'm gonna pop it to you. Hey, Molly. What's up, girl? Yeah, hi, Benny. Um, hi, Molly. I wanted to hear your question too, Ria, but I'm just, I'm so grateful for this space. Thank you so much, Benny. Thank you so much, Ria. My question is about possibilities and this mm -hmm. incredible moment that we are in right now, which so many black and brown folks have helped us to get to for decades, right? Like yeah. people have been putting in work for decades. What are some of the things that excite you about racial justice, about black liberation, which is, I agree, the liberation for us all in this moment? Hi, what a beautiful question. I get chills thinking about it, right? Because I think that what white supremacy has done is not have us not even envision what a world can look like without it. That's how messed up this system is. That it even takes a minute to be like, wow, what is the possibility? I think the possibility for me is that people stop killing us. Is that we can walk down the street, we can buy a house, we can send our children to schools that are of a certain caliber that every child goes to. It means that we are continuously ensuring that anybody who gets in our way, who is not for our freedom, I don't know what to do with them, but like they just can't be in our space. I think the possibility for racial justice and Black liberation for me is what joy looks like. It is what living looks like. It is what freedom and it is what a world that is formed for love and justice. That's what that brings up for me. That's what excites me. Thank you, Molly, for that. Thank you. Thank you. What that looks like is that party scene in the second Matrix movie where everyone, you know <laughs> what I mean? That's what I think liberation looks like for everyone. Like we're all together and we're all having a good time and we're celebrating and there's joy. There's black joy and brown joy and yellow joy and white joy. Like it's just joy. It's just joy. Yeah. Yeah. Joy and freedom. Oh, I don't know. It's a silly question. So I've, I've just been like puzzling. I don't know if you know this woman, Candace Owens, I think, who is like this oh, GOP. I'm yeah, trying so, to know about Candace Owens, but yeah. I've, yeah, I've, no, I know. Like, I also wish I did know about Candace Owens, but like, for those of you who don't know, she is this young black woman who is like the GOP like puppet who like stands up there and she's like, racism is not a thing. Like I've never had people be racist against me and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, what happened to this child? Like who, what? And, yeah. and like, is this really just a publicity stunt that she's pulling or like, does she really believe it? And if she does, like what kind of a, brainwashing did she go through anyway I, I no real question other than like what yeah what is happening I mean, there? that's i'm telling you white supremacy is enticing and i hope that candace owens finds her own sense of liberation and um, of being aligned in solidarity with her peoples that's my wish for her 
That's, that's very gracious of you. All right, <laughs> Betty, last couple of minutes together. Any parting thoughts that you have that you'd like to share with our folks on the call? And I want to thank everyone for being here. This has been a great conversation. No, it's just been really fun. You know, I just think one of the things that I've been thinking about, especially these times, is what self-care looks like, you know, for us as Black and Brown and people of color. What, like, what does that actually look like and how do we continue to fill our own cup so that we can fill others and so that we can then go out there and fight, right? Or rally, because I don't want to fight anymore. I want to rally actually. Yeah, and just like that, like part of this work is also relationship building that's grounded in love and transformation. And if those relationships are not present, this work can't happen. Yeah, beautiful. Love, transformation, coalition. Go forth into your weekend. Thank you so much for joining everyone. Benny, thank you so much for being with us. Thank uh, you. Yeah, so nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you. And would it be okay if I send out your email to folks if you want to get in touch? Yeah, sure. Very Absolutely. good. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great weekend. Enjoy. Bye. Bye.